Lord, we come to You humbly, asking that You would now speak to us through Your Word. Lord, may we be humble before Your Word. May You, uh, uh, Lord, allow us to be teachable and strengthen us and mold us and to shape us, Lord, uh, to be Your servants. And allow me as Your messenger to be faithful to Your text, we ask, Lord, in Your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. On the morning of April 19th, 1775, a British force of 800 to 900 grenadiers and light cavalry marched to Lexington, Massachusetts. The British force was confronted by about 60 to 70 colonial militia who blocked the way to Concord. A shot was fired, they don't know exactly where from, but the end result was that the British soldiers started to fire on those colonial militia, killing seven and wounding nine others. That initial shot is known as the shot heard around the world. And it opened the floodgates for the American Revolution. Two weeks ago, at the Women's World Cup final between Spain and England in Sydney, Australia, Spain would eventually win, which was a terrible thing to happen, defeating England by one goal to nil. But it wasn't Spain's victory that made the headlines. Instead, it was a kiss that was seen and heard around the world. And friends, throughout the history of mankind, there have been moments in time that are marked as significant which have gone on to shape the world scene. Let me just throw out a few. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list. The siege of Vienna, where the Muslim forces came upon the city, but it was the joint armies of Austria and Poland that defeated them there, which stopped then the ongoing movement of the Muslim armies into Europe. Significant point in time in history. Of course, Martin Luther nailing 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, which ultimately ushered in the Reformation. In more recent history, there have been things that have been said or, or things that have been done that have shaped our world. The attack on the Twin Towers in New York on 9-11. I mean, you know that if you've ever gotten on a plane since then. Of course, there's Neil Armstrong who, as he steps on the moon says, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. A significant moment that the world was able to take in. Of course, there's uh, the speech uh, uh, that Winston Churchill gave during that Second World War. We will fight on the beaches and so on. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. and his I Have a Dream speech all had an impact. I might want to say contemporary society as we know it. But today, friends, I want you to see the proclamation heard around the world. A proclamation by the Persian Emperor Cyrus the Great in 538 B.C. and a proclamation that would have a lasting effect on the world at that time and on Israel in particular because it would begin Israel's return from exile. Look at Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that means this is the first year of his rule. 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And this morning, I want to uh, lay out a proposition that I want to kind of argue for, and hopefully we will see is true, that the proclamation of Cyrus powerfully points to Christ and the gospel. And we're going to have to connect some dots. We're going to have to see what's happening from this text. But this, this proclamation, although made by a pagan king, is in actual fact the providence of God at work to bring about the coming of Jesus Christ, his Messiah. See, buried here in this obscure passage, a book that many people just ignore. In fact, as I was preparing for this, I was looking at some sites where you have you know, sermons. You can go to different sites and you can find out they have sermons on all different books of the Bible. When you get to the book of Ezra, there's hardly anything there. It's just an often neglected book of the Bible, and yet it is powerful. This is a significant moment in time. And so my aim this morning is really threefold. That you gain, first of all, a basic understanding of the setting of the book of Ezra. As I mentioned, it's a forgotten book, but it is important in the whole grand scheme of what God is doing providentially on this earth. Secondly, that you continue to be in awe of how God's redemptive plan unfolds in the pages of God's Word. I mean, I want you to be able to pick up your Bible in particular and look in the Old Testament and say, wow, this is God at work. And guess what? God is still at work. We want to see that. And third, that you are motivated and encouraged to allow God's Word to shape you so that you can lean into Him even during the rough times of life. Well, let's jump in here. And I want to argue here that the proclamation of Cyrus, first of all, is a historical proclamation. And I'm pulling some parts of verse 1 here together in, in the thinking of the sentence here. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Now, we want to make sure that we understand what's going on here because I've heard a number of people say, not you, but people out there or I've interacted with, that the Bible is just a collection of man's thoughts presented as religion forced upon others in order to control them. Have you heard something along those lines before? In other words, the Bible is just made up. But that kind of thinking, friends, can only come from people who are not actually reading their Bibles or being honest about what it says. This is a historic proclamation. And I want to just mention three things here as we think through this idea. First of all, the Bible is historically accurate. In particular, I'm thinking here about dates and events. You can count on it giving an accurate record of dates and events. Ezra 1.1 is the record of a pagan leader and his actual proclamation given specifically to the people of Israel. So here we have Cyrus, a particular leader in history, making a particular proclamation to a particular group at a particular moment in time. And it's significant, it's historical, it's real, it actually happened. And notice as you kind of 
put your fingers through the pages of the book of Ezra, some of these key statements that are made here. They're anchoring what's happening in this account to the history of the world, right? Ezra 1.1, in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia. Ezra 4.24, in the second year of Darius. Ezra 6.15, in the third day, the twelfth month, the sixth year of Darius. Ezra 7.7, the seventh year of Artaxerxes. Ezra 7.8, the fifth month, the seventh year of the king. So when you and I open the pages of God's Word, and it mentions dates and events that take place on those dates, you can be sure that the Bible is truthful and reliable. You know that, friends. Because society would want you to think that is not the case. But an honest assessment of God's Word is that that is true. The Word of God is historically accurate. Secondly there, Letter B, the Bible is geograph geographically accurate. I'm thinking here of towns and cities and peoples. The towns and cities and peoples uh, uh, groups mentioned in the Bible are not made up to suit the writer's fancy. They're actual places with actual people. For many years, uh, the Hittites, who are mentioned over 50 times in the Old Testament, were considered by skeptics to be nothing more than biblical legend until archaeological digs unearthed their capital and many records were discovered at Bogazkoy, Turkey. In other words, the Bible proved to be true all along. Now just listen or read along with me John Elder's assessment of the impact of the science of archaeology. He says, it is not too much to say that it was the rise of the science of archaeology that broke the deadlock between historians and the orthodox, that means true Christians. Little by little, one city after another, one civilization after another, one culture after another, whose memories were enshrined only in the Bible, were restored to their proper place in ancient history by the studies of archaeologists. The overall result is indisputable. Forgotten cities have been found. The handiwork of vanished peoples has reappeared. Contemporary records of biblical events have been unearthed, and the uniqueness of biblical revelation has been emphasized by contrast and comparison to the newly understood religions of ancient peoples. Nowhere has archaeological discovery refuted the Bible as history. Friends, that is a powerful statement. And it should, it should embolden you not to be like, oh, I wonder if the Bible's true. No, to say it is true. It always proves to be true. Unlike, you know, Mormonism, where they have a, a whole story of people groups here in the United States and cities and peoples where there's no archaeological evidence. The Bible's evidence, the Bible's ge ge geography proves to be true over and over and over again. So when Cyrus gives his decree, his proclamation, he is speaking about real people returning to real towns and cities through his vast kingdom. By the way, a kingdom that stretched from Greece and Egypt to the west to India and the east. That's a large plot of land. He was, as historians would agree, the ruler of what was the largest superpower that the, that world had ever had up to that point. An incredibly powerful leader, and he is making a decree that's going to impact the people of Israel 
who are in exile. This is no small proclamation. So the story of God's faithfulness navigates its way through many channels and streams and currents of history, whether they be nations, rulers, migrations, calamities. God is sovereignly at work through the history of mankind. Do you believe that? This is what one small statement is reminding us of. Third, the Bible is culturally accurate. Now hear this, the Bible doesn't seek to lay a New Testament agenda on the Old Testament text. In other words, the Bible's not trying to say, well, we see Jesus in the Gospel, let's try and force that now on the Old Testament text. That's not what's happening at all. It's always taking the Old Testament as it is. And Jesus with the disciples just shows them how He is there and present in the Old Testament, Luke 24. So it never seeks to rewrite Old Testament history to fit its gospel mold. It simply tells history as it really happened. It tells the stories of peoples and cultures and their practices in an honest and matter-of-fact way, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And of course, today we're seeing the attempt to repaint the history of the world with the brush of contemporary ideas and ideologies, aren't we? There's a renewed effort to add the LGBTQ presence into the storyline of history as if it was normal and an accepted practice in human history. I'm sure that you have noticed that as you've watched more TV shows over the past number of years or movies over the past number of years. They're kind of rewriting and filling in the gaps and creating these scenarios here to say, oh, this was always going on and everyone's fine with it. The Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't repaint history. It takes it as it is with its culture, with all the stuff that's going on. And that, that has implication for us as we go through, um, through our study of Ezra because, as you probably know, um, there were some, uh, some things that happened before this, in particular with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Because the Bible here tells us that there were different people groups that overrun, by God's design, Israel and Judah. We have the Assyrians who conquered the northern tribes of of Israel. And their agenda was to destroy them and breed them out of existence by mingling people from all over the world with them so that there was no identity as a people group. That's why you don't have anything left over. That's why the Samaritans were considered to be kind of like, eh, because they were a mixed breed. When the Babylonians conquered the southern tribes of Judah, their agenda was to conquer them culturally. They, after they, they killed a bunch of them, they pulled now the rest of them to Babylon. And they say, you're going to be taken into exile, into Babylon, where you, you are going to, we're going to convince you that our food is better, our culture is better, our literature is better. We're going to forcibly convert you to our ways. And as a result, you will discover that Babylon is superior. Now friends, this, these are two different cultural approaches. But when the Persians conquer Babylon in 539 BC, their leader Cyrus the Great comes with a different agenda. He says, you know what? 
you can go back to the lands of your people and you can rebuild your temples. He liked the idea of his empire being fueled by people being in their lands and worshiping their own gods. A different agenda, a different cultural strategy. The Bible's honest about it. This is what happened. This is how it took place. So do you see, even in this proclamation, that the Bible embraces it as the changing culture of the day at a time when Israel is in exile in Babylon. Friends, you can trust your Bible to be true. An honest assessment of the Bible will not conclude that the Bible is a fairy tale, that it's a collection of myths, or simply man's ideas forced upon others to control them. And friends, it's not limited to being faithful in areas of spirituality alone. It's faithful in its history, in its science, in its ethics, in its understanding of the nature of mankind. And certainly the Bible speaks of itself, saying all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. And there are other places we could go to too. But do we understand this reality? The proclamation of Cyrus is a historical proclamation that has a huge impact on Israel in particular. Secondly, the proclamation of Cyrus is a recorded proclamation. Notice right at the end of verse 1. He put it in writing. So twice in the Bible we have this record of this proclamation. We read it in, in 2 Chronicles 36, and we see it here in Ezra 1.1, but it was also recorded in antiquity, in other words, in history. Certainly if we follow the normal pattern, the proclamation would have come to various cities by heralds that were proclaiming these things to be true, but we're told here that it was also put in writing. Now, it may not have been in public view, but it certainly would have been preserved in the Persian records and archives together with all the administrative details that went with the proclamation. And we're going to find, as we go through the book of Ezra, the importance of that record, because in chapter 6, this is what they have to do. They have to go back into the archives to find out what did Cyrus say so that they can continue um, rebuilding the temple. This was the written rule of law. If you go to the British Museum today, you would see what is known as the Cyrus Cylinder. You have a picture up there on the screen. And it contains the orders of Cyrus the Great after he captured Babylon in 539 BC. And these orders detail his philosophy of governance and also the fact that he was allowing displaced people to go back to their lands and to build their temple. Now friends, I just want to just remind you here, I'm trying to reinforce in you, and I'm trying to help us see here, that, that this statement, this proclamation, is no small thing. It is not just some part of the storyline of the Bible, but it's the storyline of the history of mankind, but it's a storyline that is at work with God's purposes and plans to accomplish what he has set out to do. So what we have here in Ezra 1.1 is the application of that proclamation of Cyrus 
to the Jewish people living in Babylon in 538 BC. In other words, the first year of the king of Persia. Friends, once again, the historicity of the Bible is consistent with the recorded history of the world. What the Bible records is consistent with what took place in history because it is a faithful and written record. Right? Having a, having a faithful record is much more helpful than simply having a verbal record, telling stories, because those stories change. But having it written down is absolutely significant, and that was true here with this. Third, not only is it a historical proclamation, a recorded proclamation, but it's also a prophetic proclamation. Notice what it says there, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now this ultimately is the heart, I think, of this verse. Now to truly understand Jeremiah's prophecy and its impact on the people of Israel in 538 BC, we need to look back through the history of God's chosen people, just briefly, overview, and we're going to begin with a journey, uh, begin that journey with a man by the name of Abraham. God chose Abraham and brought him out of the Ur of Chaldees, if you remember. He gave him a new name, Abram to Abraham. He found Abraham's heart faithful and made a covenant with him to bless his offspring with land and through him to grow a nation. And then his descendants, the Hebrew people, who ultimately are in Egypt, they grew and they multiplied but they were enslaved by their Egyptian overlords. But God saw the affliction of his people and he heard their cry. And with many signs and wonders against Pharaoh, their king, he delivered them from their slavery and took them safely through the Red Sea. Of course, we know this as the Exodus. And while the pursuing Egyptians um, were behind them in that Red Sea, the Lord brought the waters back and, and these this army was drowned, the Bible says, like a boulder being dropped into the sea. And in the wilderness, God sustained them with food and water. He led them by a pillar of, of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. He came down to them at Mount Sinai. He spoke to them through Moses, the mediator. He gave them commandments. He commanded them to go and to possess the land that he had promised them, but they stiffened their necks. They ignored the wonders that he had performed among them and did not obey God's commandments. Even when they build a golden calf and attributed to it their deliverance from Egypt, God was merciful, although there was judgment. He was merciful and did not forsake them. For 40 years, he sustained them in the wilderness where they lacked nothing. Then they entered the promised land and began to go in, this land flowing with milk and honey. And by God's power, they subdued the peoples that took the land with its cities and vineyards and cisterns and orchard, uh, olive orchards and the fruit trees that were there. And they multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. But their descendants were disobedient. And they rebelled against God, and they cast His law behind their backs and killed the prophets whom God sent to warn them and bring them back to God. God gave them over to the people again and again, and every time, God in His mercy provided a deliverer. 
And when there was no king in Israel, and every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, God raised up his chosen king, David. He conquered Israel's enemies, united the people of God, and brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem. And God blessed Israel and David's son Solomon with land and riches and great wisdom and abundant prosperity. And through Solomon, the great temple was built in Jerusalem where they could meet with God. But there's, there's a big thing that the people needed to do, and that was to remain faithful to him. And that meant avoiding marrying those people who, were, who did not belong to God's people, who were not a part of God's people. And God warned them that marrying them would turn them away from following him. But they disobeyed. Even great King Solomon disobeyed and married many women who did not belong to God's people. And just as God had warned, they turned his heart from the Lord. And then we have the divided kingdom. God brought judgment and the nation was split in two. We have this bitter divorce taking place. Israel to the north uh, with, with, uh, with ten tribes and, and we have uh, Judah to the south with two tribes. The northern kingdom um, named Israel chose Samaria as their capital. But because they didn't have the temple, they created new altars and worshipped new gods. And its kings were evil in the sight of the Lord. And they continued to worship their gods. So God punished them by sending them into exile under Assyria. The southern kingdom took the name of Israel after the Assyrians had been taken away, or sorry, the, the northern tribes have been taken away. And although there were some excellent kings during that time, the southern kingdom eventually followed the same path and rejected God's rule over them. And though they had the temple in Jerusalem, they also created altars and worshipped other gods and began to marry those who were not followers of God. God in His mercy sent prophets to warn them about what would happen if Judah kept rejecting them. And that's how we pick up the end of the, the book of Second Chronicles here. Because what happens is that God uses Babylon now to punish them and to take them into exile. Turn to Psalm 137. We get a picture of, of what's happening with them as they are going into exile. We're just going to read the first three verses of Psalm 137. Here's what it says. By the rivers or the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. We remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us a song and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Oh, you Israelites, you guys are singers. You worship the God of Israel. Well, sing to Him now. Let us hear your song. No, we're taking you captive. It's a terrible time. God's people have been unfaithful. They didn't listen to God's kindness in bringing the prophets. But one of those prophets is Jeremiah. And he brought a message of judgment if Judah didn't listen to God, but he also brought a message of hope. And friends, it's so important for us to realize that behind Anytime God is giving a message of judgment, there is behind that a message of hope. Meaning, if you listen and repent, 
you can be restored. Jeremiah 25, verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Talking about Israel and Jerusalem. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. So there's a 70 years he's talking about. Something's going to happen here after 70 years. Jeremiah 29 Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. That means something special is going to happen. That, that's language by saying God is coming back. He's coming. He's coming with power. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Judgment. Hope. Judgment. Real painful, suffering, heartache, judgment, dispossessed, new land. But there is going to be hope. And this is where we find the very well-known Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now friends, that might be one of the most often quoted misunderstood and misapplied verses of Scripture that there ever is in the context of church or the believers. This is not talking about you and me. This is specifically a promise given to Israel before they go through trial and suffering and judgment. You quote that for someone, in theory you're saying, Hey, you've got a future and a hope, but you're going to have to go through judgment first. This is not about us. We have this tendency to put ourselves in the context here. This is about Israel. When we see it in light of Ezra 1.1, we see that it's actually a specific promise to a specific people at a specific time. God was promising Judah two things, as I mentioned, to bring judgment, for their sinful rebellion. Secondly, that there was a future and a hope. And it's the proclamation of Cyrus, friends, that marks the beginning of that prophetic fulfillment. See, God keeps His Word. You're going to go through judgment, but there's a future. And there's a hope. And I'm coming. Don't you forget about it. You can't see it. You don't understand it. It's hard to imagine this. But can you imagine when the people of Israel and Babylon heard the decree of Cyrus? Conquering leaders don't say to people, go back to your homeland. Rebuild your temples. But God in His providence brings a prophetic fulfillment to bear with this proclamation. Friends, God keeps His Word. If that nail isn't already fixed in your thinking, let Ezra 1.1 hammer it into place. God always keeps His Word. Now, historical proclamation. 
recorded proclamation, prophetic proclamation. Fourth, a divine proclamation. Notice it says in one one, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Here's an example of God working out His sovereign plan through the individual and independent choices of human leaders. A few verses to remind us of this reality. Psalm 22, 28, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over nations. Proverbs 19, 21, Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purposes of, of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel 2.21 He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Whether it's the Assyrians who were functioning with their own mindset, their own thinking, God was at work using them to bring about judgment on Israel whether it's the Babylonians that come and raid Judah, God was at work bringing them as the vehicle of judgment to take those people away. Whether it's the Phoenicians under Cyrus, it is God who is at work. And specifically, God stirs up the heart of Cyrus. Now this was Cyrus's heart. This was his idea. This was his, I want to say, paradigm of leadership and rule of his kingdom, but it was God who was working behind that to accomplish his purposes. It also was the heart of God. And just as God worked through the evil hearts of the Assyrians and the Babylonians to bring about judgment, so he worked in the heart of the Persian emperor to bring about Israel's return to Jerusalem. And friends, that should remind us to be careful about how we view human leaders and human influencers. It is so easy to become consumed with leadership and politics to the neglect of God, to put so much thought and energies and hope in the unfolding political landscape while at the same time neglecting the rest that we sung about this morning that is found through Jesus Christ. Now, yes, we should be aware of the basic essence of the political landscape. I understand that. We don't want to be ignorant and put our heads in the sand. Yes, we should take our responsibility as citizens to influence our communities on a grassroots level and to vote as we're given opportunity. But we must always give prominence to the certainty that it is God who raises and deposes leaders and governments and that He even chooses to work His will through evil leaders to accomplish His purposes. Let me ask you a question. Is God still on the throne today? I sure hope you believe that. And even when you walk out the door and you see and you hear the craziness that's happening around us, you need to be reminded of that fact. This isn't the first time there's been craziness in this world. This isn't the first society that by and large is shaking its fist at God in so many different ways. God is not knocked off of his pedestal, his throne in heaven. He is fully and completely aware and in control. And friends, we must keep that in mind as we begin to enter another political year of bickering and lies and conspiracy theories and 
podcasts and polarization and confusion. We must remember that God sits securely on his throne, that he is guiding the affairs of man according to his will, that, and that he moves the hearts of leaders as he sees fit, and that our job is to be a people who've been called by God to put our hope in Christ, to be the body of Christ and to live in a community, and as such, to shine the light of our hope in him. It's the gospel that should be coming out of our mouth more than a political slope. It's our trust in Him that should be driving. Friends, it's a truth that should motivate us to be bold with our faith, to speak the truth in the public arena, to interact with those who oppose us. Interestingly enough, talking with people is not a bad thing. All the while, proclaiming His goodness, His gospel, and his purposes, because no matter how powerful man is, he is just a pawn in the providential plan of God. And if you don't believe that, if you don't see that, you're going to start freaking out in this world. And you're going to get caught up with all sorts of stuff. Number five. This is also a redemptive proclamation. When we come to the book of Ezra, we see afresh the pulse of the redemptive plan of God beating in the events that are taking place in Babylon and Jerusalem. God is not done with His people. They have been promised a future and a hope, and that future and hope is not simply a piece of land. And what they don't quite understand is ultimately it is a person. It is the Messiah. Now turn to Ezra chapter 3, if you would please. And look at verses 1 and 2. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Joshua the son of Josadak with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to burn offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Again, when we get there, we'll, we'll, we'll emphasize this more, but to imagine the, the powerful reality of, of building that altar and offering a sacrifice in Jerusalem once again. Powerful moment. We might read this passage and just think that we're simply being given dates and facts about people and places and events, but it's when it's read through a redemptive lens, we can see clearly the beating heart of God's faithfulness to his covenant people. Notice the mention of those who are building the altar of God. There's Joshua the son of Josadak and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel. Now turn to Matthew's gospel, chapter 1 we find the genealogy of Christ. And if you remember, it's divided into three sections. Fourteen generations from Abraham to David. Fourteen generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, which is what happened before the 70 years. Fourteen generations from the deportation to Christ. And we're going to be looking in that third section, and notice verse 12. Notice what it says, and after the deportation to Babylon, 
Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of who? Zerubbabel. We have going on here in Matthew. It is the genealogy of Christ. It is also the line, the royal line of David. So Zerubbabel is the descendant of the royal line of David, of whom God said to David, your throne shall be established, how long? Forever. (laughs) But here they are in Babylon. Jerusalem, temple, sacrifices, they're gone. And with this proclamation, as a result of this proclamation, there is a man who goes back to Jerusalem. Begins by rebuilding the altar. Finishes out by rebuilding the temple. And he is a descendant of the royal line of David. Pulse. Gospel pulse. Gospel pulse. And then we also find out that Zerubbabel is the ancestor of Jesus, and that it is he that answers this call to go back. You see, God is at work in this moment, in this place, for his people. Friends, the redemptive heart of God is beating with a gospel pulse even here in the most forgotten book of the Old Testament. And friends, we must never forget that God's redemptive heartbeat is still pulsing and will pulse until the Lord returns for his own. And we get a sense of that in the book of Acts that we studied last year. Right when it says, the go- the, 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 this gospel pulse was pulsing in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the earth. And we are part of that story. But it all goes through the book of Ezra. It's part of the storyline of God's redemptive plan. It's incredible, friends. Finally, number six. A purposeful proclamation because this proclamation of Cyrus purposely ushers in a new era in the history of Israel known as the post-exilic period. Look at the chart at the back of your handout there. And I want you to notice some things about it. There's three returns from exile. First of all, under Zerubbabel, then under Ezra, and then under Nehemiah. Now, a number of years ago, we preached through Nehemiah. That was the third part, where it was really the the rebuilding of the walls. But in the book of Ezra, we have Zerubbabel coming back. That's really the first part of the book of Ezra. Then we have um, Ezra coming back. But also notice the prophetic books that are happening around here, Haggai and Zechariah. This all is happening during the time of the book of Ezra. And of course, Malachi at the end of the book of Nehemiah. And then notice also the story of Esther kind of snuck in there in between those two times um, of return. So friends, there's there's a purposeful proclamation because it sets off now this new era in Israel's history. And finally, I just want to draw your attention, just lay out a, a simple outline of this book that will help you as you think through what's going on. First of all, the hand, or God's hand restores, that's chapters one through six. God's word reveals, that's 
primarily Ezra's ministry in the word, and then ultimately God's people repent as a result of the ministry of the word. See, friends, this one verse rises out of the text and screams at us that God is faithful to keep his promises to his people. And friends, he still does that today. Now, just in closing, maybe three things to to challenge you with. One, this is not up on, on, on the screen. Number one, our future and hope is rooted in Christ and the gospel. Not land or materials or blessing. That verse is often used by prosperity gospel. People just wanting to give a feel-good kind of a thing. Yes, it is true. We do have a future and hope, but that future and hope is found in Christ. Not an earthly blessing. Not in stuff. Not in my own prosperity but the person of Christ. That is why we have the book of Colossians. To rivet in us that we are in Christ. Secondly, I want you to note that God is at work right now. Turn on CNN, turn on Fox News, or whatever station you want to listen to, and you see all this stuff, guess what? God is at work. He hasn't stopped. He's still working out his plan. We're a part of it. We're kind of moving in whatever God is doing. You may not see it, but you can be sure it is ongoing. Therefore, number three, be emboldened and empowered to live for him no matter the circumstance. Be time of judgment. Be a time of blessing. No matter what it is. Celebration, suffering. Seek to live your life for the Lord and for His glory. Now I know these are somewhat general principles, but friends, they're, they're rooted in what God is saying and reminding us of here. He is sovereign. He's working out His plan. He has for us a future and a hope in Jesus Christ. So let's live like that is true. Let's speak like that is true. Let's trust Him like we believe those things to be true. Lord, help us today just to ponder, Lord, the, the powerful things You have done in history to orchestrate and navigate your providential plan. And more, Lord, may we, may we look at your Bible, at your word, Lord, not just simply as a record, but as a living, breathing book. Lord, you've breathed out for us to show us how awesome and incredible you are. And that you are still active in the life of your people. Now, Lord, as we come together and we celebrate the Lord's table, we are thankful, Lord, that we can come 
and we can remember the fact that, Lord, we have You as our hope. That because of what You have done by hanging on the cross and dying for our sins, Lord, You have given us new life. You shed Your blood. You gave Your body for us, Lord. Now may we remember that specifically and how it impacted our lives in that particular moment, in that particular way, in that particular place. Thank You, Lord, for what You have done for us and what You are continuing to do. Lord, may we celebrate who You are together. For Your glory, we ask this now in Your name. Amen.